This is the untold story of the forgotten victims. Listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators, and their behavior at real crime scenes. There are going to be some graphic details throughout this podcast series. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. It's harrowing and haunting. And these episodes may be triggering or upsetting, so please be warned in advance. Across my career, I've noticed a pattern. Rarely do people remember the victims' names. They tend to get rubbed out and become footnotes in their own murders. So before I even begin, I want you to remember them, and together, let's honour them. Hashtag her name was Wilma McCann, Emily Jackson, Irene Richardson, Deborah Schlesinger, Patricia Atkinson, Jane MacDonald, Jean Jordan, Yvonne Pearson, Helen Richter, Vera Millard, Josephine Whitaker, Barbara Leach, Marguerite Wars, Jacqueline Hill. And what about the 23 children that grew up without their mother? They're victims too. And the brave and courageous women who survived. Let's remember them right here, right now, before we do anything else. Anna Rajelski, Olive Smelt, Tracy Brown, Marcella Claxton, Maureen Long, Marilyn Moore, Anne Rooney, Dr. Padgia Bandera, Maureen Molee, Teresa Sykes. Well, and what about the other women he attacked? Because there were others, many others, and we're going to get to them. But it was really important for me, well, for us, to start at the place that matters the most and ensure that these women and children are not footnotes in their own cases, overshadowed by him. And in talking about them, we have to talk about him, the man who brutally killed and silenced at least 14 women forever. And this man attacked countless more. We just have to find them. So in a sense, this is a case which is a whodunit and a why done it, and a forensic deconstruction of how he did it and how he got away with it for so long. So come join me, Laura Richards, criminal behavioural analyst for New Scotland Yard, as I re-examine and analyse this historical case with an experienced and contemporary lens. And throughout this unfolding dynamic investigation, we're going to understand just how important that is, why this case matters so much, and why we must listen to the women. Welcome to Crime Analyst. On November 13th, 2020, Peter Sutcliffe died in prison, aged 74. The news headlines announced all over the world that one of the UK's most notorious serial killers had died of COVID. I read most of the reports with interest, followed by growing anger and disgust. The fact that most people know his name is disturbing. Or they know him by the moniker, the Yorkshire Ripper, which to me is even worse. In fact, it's completely nauseating. I'm intentionally not going to say the R word going forward, and I'll let you know why momentarily. Why I felt a growing sense of anger was that barely any of the news reports listed the victims. The women that he murdered or those who he attacked and had survived. The very reason he was in prison serving 20 concurrent life sentences. 
In fact, Sutcliffe was one of the few men in the UK who would never be released from prison. Most people know his name, but barely anyone I speak with present day can remember any of the victims' names. Well, what I can tell you is that all of these women were in the prime of their life and their lives were brutally cut short. And they were murdered by a man, a man who thought it was his right to kill them. At the point of his death, I searched the internet to find out more about the women and find pictures of them so that I could post on social media to honour them. But sadly, I was greeted with very little in return. Although in fairness, I did find some black and white portrait pictures of the 14 women. They were austere and one-dimensional pictures, their faces staring back at you, almost like police mugshots. In fact, some of them were. These pictures do nothing to honour them. They do nothing to elicit sympathy in the public's eyes, and they do nothing to portray anything about their character or their lives. In fact, I'd argue that they do the polar opposite and may well make people care less about them. It started me thinking again. Why would the police use these pictures in a murder inquiry? You know, the point of using the media is to engage the help of the public, possible witnesses who may have seen something. You want people to come forward. You're appealing to them for information. You really need them to care. You need them to care enough to be an upstander, care enough to come forward and help. Well, let's see the victim's pictures against the backdrop of all of his, the serial killer. Let's take stock for a moment of the vast array of photos of him, old and new, past and present, some in black and white and others in colour. Some dressed up at his wedding, others whilst he's taking a leisurely stroll. All those pictures of him and the thousands of internet pages including websites dedicated to him, the man who brutally murdered and attacked innocent women in the north of England in the 1960s, 70s and 80s. Everyone knows who he is and the media fascination with him didn't end when he was in prison. He even has numerous fancy obituaries written by the major news outlets. And in stark contrast, what did the victims get? And their families? You see, that's what makes me angry. How can that be right? How can that feel like justice to them or for them? In fact, when he died, I was so annoyed I posted a picture of all the women he murdered on social media and asked people to remember them and stop memorialising a killer. And then I listened very carefully to what Richard McCann said when Peter Sutcliffe died. You're now going to hear from Richard McCann, the son of Wilma McCann, about the impact of his mother's murder on him and his family, the other forgotten victims. And you'll hear firsthand how he feels about the police and how they handled his mother's murder. I'm not celebrating it, put it that way. I, 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 feel, a, I, I feel some sense of closure and just because while ever he was alive, I mean, if we listed the amount of news stories that we've had and those constant reminders of what he did, and we had it in the piece just there where the police obviously described how the victims were hit, that's the kind of thing that shook me up just then, by the way. Um, that's the kind of thing we've had to endure for many, many years. So for me... It's the, 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 the reduction, hopefully, in, in press uh, stories, uh, uh, the tabloid process I'm talking about, um, that have really irritated me my entire life, to be fair. And so I'm, I'm, to some degree, there's some closure there, but I'm certainly not celebrating it. In fact, I reached out to Carl Sutcliffe and gave him a call when I got the news um, to offer my condolences. Gosh, many people will be absolutely amazed that you did that, that you felt able to do that. 
I don't know. Um, I mean, Carl Sutcliffe reached out to me many years ago when he read about me, um, my journey uh, when I, when I wrote a book years ago and he reached out to me with compassion and um, I did, I felt the same. I know, I know he did obviously did some horrendous things, um, but it was still his brother. So um, I, I felt like I wanted to call him. Uh, talk to us then. Uh, and you talked about these crimes being reduced in the, in the tabloid press to sensational headlines. Let's get behind that. Uh, if we can, Richard, and yeah, talk about sure. the impact on you, you were just five when your mum Wilma was killed. On you and your siblings, and and how that affected your young lives and how you developed. Well, the main thing I can I can think about was that 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 feeling of of loss of of and of fear. You know, even though I wasn't exposed to everything that was was being spoken about and written about, I, I certainly knew what was going on, and and I lived in fear, especially when. Jim MacDonald, the fifth person to die, uh, incidentally, the first apparent innocent victim, according to the police, um, when she died and she babysat for us and lived seven houses away from where we lived with my mum, I thought in my little young mind, oh, gosh, he must have been watching all the houses and, and the babysitters. I thought he was going to kill me. So that's the main way in which it impacted on me uh, as a young child. And, and the shame of it all, the, especially because of the way some of the women were described, including my mum, embarrassment and shame and that you know to some degree has stuck with me for many many years and it's only in more recent years that I've you know started to you know create a life for myself and, and have my own family and, um, and 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 what was fantastic for me personally about this morning was um, it was my young son Ellis who broke the news to me so for the first time ever, I heard about something related to my mum or her killer from a family member and not a phone call from a media. You know, some, the Mirror once called me at half past 11 at night or one of their journalists anyway um, to tell me last year that he'd had a heart attack and would I make a comment? They woke me up. So, so it was nice for it to be my son to tell me because one of his friends had, had texted him. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean, skin-loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. 
I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crimeanalyst for 10% off your first order. It's really interesting listening to this and, and you describing the terror and fear that you felt as a very young child and how that must have affected you psychologically as you mm. grew up. But you, you managed eventually t- to leave all of that behind. How do you think you've been able to do that? I, I've just been on a, a long personal journey um, of, of personal development, I suppose. You know, so, so I used to lie about my mum. I joined the army and I, I told them that my mum died in a car accident because I was too ashamed of it all. Because I knew that a lot of society and, and, and to some degree the media and, and such like and the police looked down at some of the victims. And I, I, I didn't want to have that. I wanted to uh, regrettably now distance myself from who I was and who my mum was. As you heard from Richard, the legacy is important. Words matter. Getting cases right matters. How we talk about victims matters. How we talk about the perpetrators, it all matters. And you're going to be hearing more from Richard as I've been talking with him and I've been helping him with a really important campaign. So this case happened before I even began my career. Rest assured, it is just as relevant today as it was then. The learning is still hugely relevant, the true learning. And so here's some background context that's useful for you to know before we dive in. Note bene, that's Latin for note well. The context is of paramount importance, the context and the behaviour, and you're going to hear me say that a lot. So this case, the murders in the north of England, in Yorkshire and Manchester, so this case was the very reason my unit, the Sexual Offences Section in SO11, was set up at New Scotland Yard within the Intelligence Branch. The aim of the unit was to identify and link stranger rape, murder and abduction cases, namely to identify serial offenders and prevent a Peter Sutcliffe from happening again. That was the aim. That was the mission. That was in 1996. And I'm still on that mission, sadly armed with more and more cases and the urgent need to end male violence and keep women and girls safe. Serial perpetrators has been a continuous theme across my career and I'm still working on a campaign present day for serial perpetrators to be proactively identified, assessed and managed by police, probation and prisons in the UK and I'll come back to that. So there's much more to the backstory and full disclosure, I've been immersed in this case for many, many months. You see, at the start of 2020, I was asked to take part in a TV documentary about Sutcliffe to mark the 40th anniversary of his arrest, that being January 2nd, 2021. 
The director requested he speak with me ahead of me committing to this project, and so I did what I always do. I dug in and analysed the case to see if I had any insights that I could offer to make it worth contributing. The director also offered me further information about some of the victims and the case itself and Sutcliffe. And I was surprised to learn some new things that I'd not fully understood or appreciated before. You see, now with my 25-year lens of working major crime, and primarily violence against women and girls, I realised a lot of what I'd learned in the police about this case simply wasn't accurate. I'd like to say that I was shocked, but I wasn't. And I wasn't entirely surprised. But it did leave me feeling very uneasy. Travel between the UK and US meant that I didn't actually take part in the documentary in the end, as I was stateside when they wanted me on camera in the UK. However, that feeling of discomfort didn't leave me. I had to know more. My interest was well and truly piqued. What more was there to be uncovered? People have often said I'm like a dog with a bone, particularly with a case. You have to be in my line of work. It's the difference between mediocrity and excellence. You have to become fully immersed, almost to the detriment of everything else. I live, eat, breathe and sleep a case. I become single-minded and laser-focused. And I'll tell you this, the devil is always in the detail in this work, both literally and metaphorically speaking. And when I thought about launching Crime Analyst, my first solo project, and started talking to friends and colleagues about it, and having gone through all my old cases, particularly throughout lockdown, this is the case that I wanted to deep dive and re-examine first off. And so I started re-examining and reinvestigating this case in my own time, and I haven't stopped being surprised and shocked as each new realisation and revelation has hit. You see, as I said, this case happened before I began my career, but I've learned so much since I walked through the famous revolving doors of New Scotland Yard, wide-eyed, eager to learn, brimming with enthusiasm and hope, and somewhat naive. I really thought I was joining the right side, joining my people, People who wanted to help others and catch the bad guys. I thought that's what we all signed up to. Yeah, more on that later. Keep listening. Back then, I didn't have the knowledge that I do now, accumulated from working thousands of cases, running the sexual offences section and the homicide prevention unit, twinned with specialising in studying forensic and legal psychology and continuing to read voraciously. You see, now it's a different story. And the more I read, the more questions I had. That's often the case with analysis, hence being curious, asking questions, lots of them. You see, that's the cornerstone of being a good crime analyst. And in this case, like all, I wanted to know more about the victims. I wanted to find out more about how they lived. A skilled offender targets a particular victim in a particular location at a particular time for a particular reason. The victim holds a mirror up to the perpetrator and the crime scene reveals many reflections of who the perpetrator is. I've always worked on the basis that if you learn how someone lived, you'll discover how they died. That's the importance of victimology. That's the starting point where I always begin, and I can't underline this enough. You'll hear me talk about victimology a lot. Is there any pattern regarding the women being targeted? And you'll already know that this investigative team, at the time got this very, very wrong, which meant that Peter Sutcliffe was allowed to kill and harm many more victims as a direct consequence. Just taking a moment to pause on that thought, as it's a very important lesson to highlight. You see, with investigative and behavioural analysis work, care should always be taken not to draw conclusions too quickly or make assumptions, 
and not to disregard living victims and evidence in favour of a thought or a theory that has no foundation and is not supported by the facts. More on this in other episodes. Back to the victims. At what point did their lives intersect with his? Were they targeted? And if so, how? For example, were they engaged in conversation or was it a surprise or blitz attack? The conversation is the ruse, a distraction to lull someone into a false sense of security. The surprise attack, well, this often follows after some form of engagement. Or the blitz attack. The blitz is literally just that. It comes out of the blue, from nowhere, without any prior warning, and violence is rained down on the victim hard and fast. Well, what about the locations? When and where did the victim first become aware of the perpetrator? Did they see him beforehand? And where were the victims attacked? Were they attacked in the same place he talked to them, for example? And if he killed them, where were they killed? And was that the same location as where their bodies were found? What patterns emerge, if any, if the attack locations are placed on a map? Are there any repeat locations or patterns? And when were the women attacked? Is there a pattern to the day of the week, to the dates or the times? Are all the attacks at night, for example? And what was the chronology and sequence of events? What did the police know and what were they doing to catch him? What were the investigative strategies? Which offences were linked, why, and based on what criteria? What other offences might have he committed? What was the media strategy? What did the community know, and how did they feel, women and men, as this investigation stumbled and hobbled along year after year, and more and more women's bodies were piling up? Why did Peter Sutcliffe get away with it for so long? How did he manage to kill 14 women and attack and harm so many more? And exactly how many other women are suspected of being attacked by Sutcliffe? I can tell you that when you scour the reports and the newspaper articles, it seems to range from 13, 17 to 20, up to 23. Well, I suspect it was far more than that in any event, given that the time period he was allowed to offend for and how prolific he was and the fact that he was a lorry driver, so he travelled. So we know it's not just going to be contained to one geographic area. So in this series, I'm going to analyse which cases I believe he committed and we're going to deconstruct and analyse those offences too after we've analysed and deconstructed the offences which we know that he committed. I call them A1 offences, the index offences. Those we know are definitely linked and committed by Peter Sutcliffe. The A2s are the ones he is suspected of doing. More on my analytical grid system in other episodes. And importantly, I want to extrapolate the lessons from this case, what they were, what they truly are, as this case has wide-reaching consequences for policing and society. And there were multiple reviews from the Byford Report in 1981, the Sampson Report and others. But before we jump into the case itself, and I know that's what you all want to hear about, I want to talk about some more background context because it's important to explain a couple of things. So one of those things is that from now on, throughout this series, I will refer to Sutcliffe by his initials, P.S. I'm not going to give him any more airtime than's needed, and I don't want you to focus on him, and I don't want you to remember his name or repeat that horrific moniker that the media gave him. And I do want to say something about the moniker for you to consider going forward. The media dubbed him the Yorkshire R-word, 
because the police were slow in linking the offences. It was an insensitive nod to what he was doing physically to the women and also a nod to Jack the R-word, the Victorian serial killer in the UK who was never caught, or more specifically, who was in London and never caught. And the reason that they may have used the R-word, well, that could have been well-intentioned. It might have been to keep the case in the media and to keep the story newsworthy. However, what it did in reality was cause untold distress and misery to the families of the victims and stigmatised other victims. It impeded the investigation and created a mythical caricature of the man they were hunting. When in fact that man was a local lorry driver from Bradford. It also gave him celebrity status to live up to, and it may well have played a role in him upping the ante and killing more women. So I'm asking you to please stop using the moniker in this case and others that relate to other cases. And you'll see that Netflix have recently released a documentary with the R word in it, and you're going to hear Richard and I talk about that. You see, serial killers don't deserve to be put on a pedestal. They are undeserving of celebrity status. And after all, that's what many of them seek. So why should we feed their narcissism and ego? In fact, we should do the opposite. We should not be feeding into their psychopathy. And language has played such a big part in this case. It has had such a profound impact right from the start, and it still has an impact present day. And from all the murders I've reviewed, I can say in my professional experience, if it starts badly, it tends to end badly. And I want you, well us, to listen to the surviving victims. Listen to the families of those who were murdered and let's remember the victims. They are the deserving ones. We must learn from their deaths. We must change and challenge the narrative. So let's agree that from the start, can we? Let's agree to keep an open mind, one of the first principles of an investigation. The second is to go where the evidence takes you. And that's what we're going to do. I'm going to speak to some key people, including Richard McCann, about his mother, Wilma, as well as those who lived through this case and some who survived this case. And you're going to hear from them too. So ride shotgun with me and help me analyse and unravel this case once and for all as we go back in time to Yorkshire. So to orientate you, those of you who are not from the UK, Yorkshire is a county in the north of England. In fact, it's the largest county in the UK. It's a very popular area due to the Yorkshire Dales and North York Moors in part, and that's why it's also earned its nickname God's Own Country. Post-1974, Yorkshire was divided up into South Yorkshire, North Yorkshire and West Yorkshire. Coal mining was extremely active in the south of the county during the 19th century and for most of the 20th century, particularly around Barnsley and Wakefield. As late as the 1970s, the numbers of miners working in the area were still in six figures. But that all changed in the 1980s. Yorkshire is famous for many things, including its tea and its sports such as cricket and its home to the famous Yorkshire pudding and many breweries. And across the 70s, many of the motorways or as they're called in the US, freeways, opened up connecting Yorkshire to Manchester and London and all other parts of the UK. Now, this is an important point to note, particularly as PS was a long-distance lorry driver, a lorry being a truck, a truck delivering deliveries and so forth. So having situated you in Yorkshire, let's dive into the case and start with what people often mistakenly refer to as the first victim. October 1975. 
the Prince Philip playing fields in Leeds. The first victim of the Yorkshire Ripper died within sight of the home she shared with her four young children. Her name was Wilma McCann. She was 28 years old and came from Scotland. She'd been hit over the head, her blouse pulled up, her trousers pulled down, and stabbed 14 times. It's October 29th, 1975. 28-year-old Wilma McCann was out for the night. She'd been to a couple of the local pubs in Chapeltown, Leeds, which is in West Yorkshire. She was dressed in a pink blouse, blue bolero jacket and white slacks. We now know that she left a bar called The Room at the Top shortly before one o'clock in the morning and was making her way home. Now, although she didn't live that far away, Wilma was trying to get a ride. A number of people came forward afterwards saying that they'd seen her stopping a number of cars and asking for a lift. One man stopped to speak to Wilma and he let her in his car. That would be the last time that she was seen alive. Wilma never made it home. The next morning, a milkman spotted a body in the Prince Philip playing fields. The body was later identified as Wilma McCann. Wilma McCann's white slacks were down around her knees and her bra had been moved up to expose her breasts. She had been stabbed in the lower abdomen and chest 13 times and her head had been crushed with hammer blows. There was semen on the back of her trousers. The perpetrator had most likely masturbated after he had killed her. Now, the fact that her white trousers had been pulled down around her knees was intentional, along with exposing her breasts. She was displayed. Again, these were deliberate and intentional behaviours by the perpetrator. Wilma had also been stabbed more times than was necessary to kill her, and she'd also been hit with the hammer. Now, we know the hammer blows came first. These were, in effect, functional blows to get her onto the ground and under the control of the perpetrator. They would most likely render her unconscious, and thereafter he, the perpetrator, can do what he's really there to do. Now, you see, if this was a perpetrator that was really about killing, he would have struck her multiple times on the head and left. But having overpowered her and obliterated her, he stayed longer at the scene. That's because he wanted to spend time with her, and that time put him at risk, risk of him being caught. And he took that risk because that's what he really wanted to do. And after he stabbed her multiple times in the abdomen, he then masturbated after he killed her. You see, this was not a frenzied attack. That's important to understand. And twinned with blunt force trauma to the head and multiple stab wounds, it's extremely rare for an offender to kill in this way and then spend time with the victim, masturbating to the point of ejaculation. This was something that most likely those attending the scene did not think about with this case, or indeed others. This sort of detail, the granular behavioural detail of what the perpetrator is doing, is critical. Understanding the what and the how tells us about the why, which ultimately sheds light on the who. Very little of the sexual behaviour was reported in the media or even talked about in police circles. But for a criminal behavioural analyst like me, these are exactly the things I need to know about. I need to understand motivation. And it becomes even more important once an offender is arrested to inform interview strategies. And it will also have a significant bearing on any future trial. 
The media headlines screamed that a 28-year-old divorcee from a council estate had been found dead. The small print described her as a prostitute, a good-time girl, their words, not mine. That was despite the fact Wilmer had no previous convictions for prostitution. Yet, the reporters had no qualms labelling her in this way. This has stuck forever in news reports and has serious repercussions present day. You'll hear more about that very soon from Richard, Wilmer's son. So let's update you on some of the information about Wilmer. Wilmer came from Scotland originally. She was the mother of four children and she'd had a tough time of late before she was killed. She was also a victim of domestic abuse. She'd eventually left her abusive husband and she was forced to bring up her four children alone. Wilma's eldest daughter was Sonia. She was seven at the time. Then there was Richard, who was five, just about to turn six. And then Donna, who was four, just about to turn five two weeks later. And Angela was the youngest. She had just turned three. Sonia was told by her mum that she was going out for the night and that she was to keep the other children in bed and she'd be back by the time they woke up in the morning. Here's Richard McCann, Wilma's son, to tell you more. It was a week before my sixth birthday when everything changed. And that is a memory I'll never forget. That night, mum going out, being woken periodically throughout the night because the youngest, Angela, who was three, was crying and Sonia was seeing to her. Sonia was the eldest, um, seven. And then I'll just never forget being woken up by her to be told mum had not come home. And just, it was, it was a really surreal feeling. What, what, she's not home? What, what we'll be getting up soon. What, where, where is she? Uh, so I remember that confusion almost. And then we left the house and went looking for her, walking down the path on the field is a, a memory in the dark, but it was misty as well. You couldn't really see that far in front of you. We, we walked down the path because that's what mum sometimes... So, so rather than walking down in full view of any neighbours, not that there were many neighbours around at that time anyway, we're talking just after five o'clock in the morning, but mum always walked up and down. Rather than walking up and down the street in full view, she would, and I think because she sometimes had boyfriends, she would go through a little alleyway at the bottom of the street, which went onto the field at the back, and then there's walk up a path, which then allowed you to gain access to the what we called the back garden. So mum would sometimes do that, and I think she did that because in the file it tells me that the neighbours were spying on her for the social services, so she would hide from them. and So we did that, and it was the eeriest feeling, surreal feeling, because it, just, it was unheard of that mum wouldn't be there in the morning. So it's like, what, you know, in your young mind, you can't imagine what might have happened. And the only thing I could come up with is her boyfriend, dad left when I was four, her boyfriend would just, had just been released from prison for being violent to her. So we knew that, and I knew that she was scared of him being released. So the only thing I could think of is she, she's bumped into Jimmy. But we, we, we made our way to the bus stop and we just sat and we waited and we waited and we obviously waited until eventually, you know, it was getting lighter by now and it was obvious she wasn't coming home on the bus. So we went back hoping she she might have arrived home in a taxi um, in the meantime. But uh, she obviously she, she didn't arrive home in the taxi and we got the two younger sisters out of bed and obviously there's no TV, there's no breakfast TV back then. Um, but we made breakfast and, um, well, the rest's history. The, the, the police were soon at the house and and took us away, asked us when we last saw her, asked us if we had any, had any photographs of her, which we didn't. They'd obviously found her at that point, but we were taken to the local children's home. You're going to hear more from Richard in the next episode of Crime Analyst. 
In fact, I want you to hear the whole interview with Richard. There's such a lot to think about with this case and this series, and I'm going to leave it here for now, but I hope you'll join me back in the Intelligence Cell next week. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written and produced by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering is by Jesse McEwen from Tanziasta Creative. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom from Syndicate. And the music is by Kilroot.